Tonight's lesson, we're going to look into a subject, decisions when you don't think you have a choice. Or I want to subtitle it something called the choices you make under pressure. When we face difficult situations, a lot of times we try to convince ourselves that we have no choice. We're going to pick up in the life of Abraham. So we're going to start with Genesis 12.1, and the opening line is, Go! Go. God told Abraham, go into all the world. <laughs> so in Genesis 12, 1, the Lord said to Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from your father's house and get into the land that I will show you where it is. So it begins by telling him, go. Abraham, I want you to go. So can you imagine that God tells you something like that, like go, but I'm not telling you where yet. I'll tell you on the way. And then you've got to go and explain it to your wife and the family that you're going. And so God gave Abraham a direct promise. And he tells Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I want you to have this concept that Abraham was going with the idea that he was a great nation. Now, that's an unusual idea to think about yourself that you have within you a great nation. So I want you to pay attention to this because Whatever God speaks over your life, you carry that with you. Like he's carrying that concept with him. But as we find out in this passage, a man can walk in faith, but still have to face fear in his life. Like you can have a great faith walk where you literally walk in your faith, but you can still face fear. So the initial results of Abraham, go where I show you journeys, is not so promising right here. I want you to look at what happens. Skip down to verse 6, and I want you to notice a verse that we hardly ever read. We just skip over this one. But in verse 6, it talks about as he's going, he runs across the Canaanites in the land. Now, the Canaanites were fierce people. I mean, that's like the pioneers with the Indians. The Canaanites were the pagans in the land. So Abraham has to go past the Canaanites. He goes through their territory. But you don't see any fear in him. You don't see Abraham have any problems here. And yet they're very competitive people. They're very fierce people for the land. But Abraham just keeps moving. So I want you to notice why this is interesting here, that he's able to face a people group, but it doesn't cause him any problems. And this is just a few verses down. It's five verses down where he faces the Canaanites. So there's going to be parts of your journey in your life that will be fearful, intimidating. You will face enemies that are strong, and you will have to get past them. You'll face problems. You'll face things that literally you just think, there's no way I can get past this. But Abraham is sailing along. He goes through this real well. So each of us responds to these obstacles differently. But I don't want you to underestimate the threat that these things do to your life. This is what narrows you down to thinking you just have one choice. You will have the power of a threat, and it can hinder you, and a threat can hold back those that are around you. So Abraham spent a long time trying to figure out where he was supposed to put his stakes down. And he works through that in Genesis 12, 8 through 9. So he's trying to figure out, okay, I'm going to put my tent and I'm going to settle at this point in the land. And so in verse 8, he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and he pitched his tent 
with Bethel on its west and I on the east. Had you ever noticed that? That when he pitched his tent, it says that there were two places, one on each side. One was Bethel and one was I. I is spelled A-I. You know, where else would it be when he's a man from us? He was <laughs> next to I. And it says that he called upon the name of the Lord and he cried out to him. He built an altar and he cried out. So this is where Abraham sojourned. He went here and he stopped. And it tells you in scripture what's on both sides of him. He pitched his tents. And I think that this is the two choices that are always between you. Like they're always present in your life. When you're trying to make a decision, there's going to be something that is Bethel, which is house of God, and I. In a minute, I'll tell you what I is, what that means in the Hebrew. And it's interesting because at this point, this is the time that Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Abraham chose God's way during this point. At this place, when God establishes you somewhere where he dwells, like Bethel is going to have a history all the way through the Bible of being the place where God is. When God puts you where you're supposed to be, stay there. When God establishes you in the land, don't leave, don't move. Stay there. And you see that people will get established by God, that Abraham got established by God, and watch what immediately starts happening to him. Decisions. And you see this right from the beginning when God put Abraham where he was supposed to be. And you've literally got to hold your place with God. When the word is given to you, immediately you're under pressure. You're under pressure to move from where God put you. You know, I was thinking one time about this having choices under pressure. And I was eating with probably one of the wealthiest ladies that is in this entire territory. And she, she and I were having lunch. I thought, well, what could I ask her about her life? And I asked her, I said, would you give me a piece of advice? And I told her something that I had that in the ministry that I was trying to hold the ground with. And I said, what would you tell me? What would be the answer you would give me? She said, you're under pressure. She said, it's causing you a lot of pressure. She said, when someone's pushing you really hard to sign something, she said, when they're trying to really get you to do something, she said, I've learned the lesson. Don't ever let someone push you into something in a hurry. Don't ever let someone hustle you. She said, take your time and seek the Lord. That's a dangerous situation when you get pressured. And this is where Abraham was, that Abraham should have sat still right where he was. He had staked his claim. God had led him there. But look in Genesis 12, verse 9. These are the scriptures you usually don't look at in the passage of Abraham. Genesis 12 is the most well-known passage about Abraham. But tonight, we're looking at the passages that we never look at. You're looking at things that maybe you've never taken time to stare at. But I guarantee they affect your life when God sets you where you're supposed to be. In verse 9, it says, Abram journeyed. He still went south. Now, Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him because he was in his season of obedience. Have you ever gone through a period in your life where you're just real obedient to the Lord? 
Everything he wants you to do, you're just obedient to him. Abraham was in a season of being obedient. And sometimes when you've been extremely obedient, you reward yourself with not being obedient afterwards. And so this is kind of what happened to Abraham here. It says that an Abram journey going on still south. Wow. You know, um, with as important as details are in stories, why that one? You know, of all things they could say about Abraham, that's an unusual one to bring to the table. But it's because at this moment, something is about to change. Something is about to happen. Eventually, all these things which went wrong would take his family to a place they didn't need to go hundreds of miles away from the land of God's promise. And that is verse 10. So 9 sets you up for saying he's still going south. And verse 10, he goes to a place that he's hundreds of miles away. So in 10 short verses, Abram had gone to Egypt. So God calls him. He tells him to go and get into the land that I will show you where it is. How soon have you gotten into trouble? How soon have you gotten into your Egypt? It'll be after the Spirit of the Lord stirs you. It'll be after the strongest victory. It'll be after God does an amazing thing in your life. God will plant you where you're supposed to go, and then suddenly something will take you further south than you need to go. He didn't feel like it was his land while he was down here. You don't find him crying out to God. There's not a mention of anything in the relationship between Abraham and God during this period. So in 10 verses, he went to Egypt. And he went to a place that he didn't belong. Have you ever realized that when you get out of the will of God, you just don't feel like you belong there? When you get somewhere you're not supposed to go, it doesn't feel like your country. When you are in the will of God, you can feel yourself just fit there like a puzzle piece. Like it gives you what you've been wanting. But you can tell that he wasn't feeling God in the place. There's no communication between God and him recorded or the altar or anything. But as soon as you get placed exactly where God wants you to be, the devil will try to move you. Just when I see you get happy, just when you get a little bit of victory, just when I see things just begin to start turning around and going right, just when the Lord has worked something out in your life, just when you start winning, you back up. So Abraham had received this direct word from the Lord. He tells him, I will make you a great nation. So when you factor that into it, it should have made Abraham not do what he's about to do. He should have known if God promised it, he had the power to bring it about. That was his promise. But Abraham is about to leave for one reason. I don't know if you know the reason that he's going to leave. I can say one good thing about Abraham here. At least he didn't head back home. Some people, you know, they turn back around and go right back out of the pit they came from. They'll turn right back around and go right back to their, to their home. At least he didn't go back there. But I'm going to say now that when he said, I will make you a great nation, now the nation is moving. <laughs> and the nation is relocating down to Egypt. <laughs> so the nation moved to Egypt. And what's happening to Abraham is his fear started multiplying on him. 
And what the devil will do to you is cause adversity. When the word is planted in your heart, he will try to blow it up, mess it up, give you a reason to quit. What he got afraid of was famine. Now, why did he get afraid of famine? See, you look up earlier and you see that the reason that he left was an economic reason. Did you know most people make their moves because of economics? They make their move because of something to do with money. Some of the people that claim to be the strongest Christians, they'll tell me they move somewhere because of their job. And I'm like, mm, you're not moving because of the will of God. You're moving because of where you get your best pay. It's funny how people have lived all kinds of places for economic reasons, not for seeking the will of God. I bet if we all were where God wanted us to be, we'd all be married to different people. We'd all be having different friends. The churches look different. I mean, it'd be a totally different situation if people moved for the reason that God is calling them there. But Abraham, he moved because of famine. Perhaps he got tired of watering his camels. It just got to be, maybe he thought it was too much. But what causes us to get out of the will of God is adversity. You know, I guess I take a different approach than my parents. My parents were so pastoral and they'd love on you and just really comfort you. And I'm like, well, let's just let you kind of thin out anyway. You're not going to make it. (laughs) And that's where you've got to be, where you've got that strength. You know, it feels like your testimony over here sitting to my right where you told me that you just had something hit you and you had to make a decision, Rachel, of what God wanted from you. Like you couldn't let something get you off the will of God. So here Abram is. Maybe you're afraid of being poor. Maybe you're afraid of going back into poverty. Maybe you're afraid of losing. But he takes everything he has and he moves to Egypt. So the way that I would state this is he had a fear and he let it stand. When you let something stand, it starts becoming a perpetual fear. I'm very serious about where the Lord spoke to me that people have to get their perpetual fears out of their life. If there's something that's constantly a fear to you, face it. Because what happens is there's a whistle in the spiritual realm. Fear When you give in to it, when you surrender to a fear, it starts whistling for more of them to come. There's a magnet to fear. What I fear comes upon me. So you can't have a fear left standing in your life because they start multiplying. And you cave into one fear and it excites something in the spiritual realm. And it's not the good side. And it brings in more of your fears. It compounds it. And they go with you where you travel. If you start running, the fears go with you. You can't turn your back on fear. It'll get incredibly worse. Have you ever had this happen? Where you had one fear and it immediately turns into three when you give to it? Ten. It just starts multiplying out. What are you going to do? What happens if suddenly adversity comes to your home or the poverty or or you're just not making it? Well, last night, I have to turn to the the words of Reba McIntyre. And let's talk a little bit about poverty because something hit me on this. But I had never heard this song last night, so one of you work on my cultural education, but in 1990, Reba released one of her most popular songs called Fancy. Not yours, Anna. 
you know, try not to say what you taught me. But anyway, she released the song Fancy on a album called Rumor Has It. Now that tells you a lot about it right there. And it's the story of a poor girl's mother who was forced to make ends meet. And this song captivated audiences, and it still remains one of her most famous pieces of her work. Well, I heard it for the first time yesterday. And Reba, you know, belts it out fancy. And it's a story about a girl and her mother. And her mother had a troubled look in her eyes. That's a bad place to start when mama looks troubled. But the lyrics say something like this in the beginning. I remember it all very well, looking back. It was the summer I turned 18. We lived in a one-room, run-down shack on the outskirts of New Orleans. We didn't have money for food or rent. She said, your paws run off, and I'm real sick, and the baby's going to starve to death. And at that point, Mama does something about it, and she gathers up all the money she has to get her daughter a dress. Not just any dress but a dress that can get her daughter out of poverty. A satin dancing dress. And she tells her, here's your one chance, Fancy. Don't let me down. Reba was being interviewed about this song, and they said, what do you feel about this song? Did you write it? No. And she said, but I always wanted to record it. And she said, I love these rags to riches stories. And I thought, you know, I think Reba claims to be a Christian. And that's the point that I'm making. Because when you listen to the song, Fancy did have a lot of obstacles in her way. And to sum it up, Fancy's ill mother used the last penny she had to buy her a dress. And after dolling her daughter up, putting a little perfume on her, she sent Fancy off into the world with this advice. Just be nice to the gentlemen and they'll be nice to you. She said there was a girl looking in the mirror, but when she put on the dress, she changed. Through heartbreaking, Fancy does pull herself up by her bootstraps. Eventually, she charms a congressman, occasionally an aristocrat. She earns herself a mansion in Georgia, and she ends up in a townhouse in New York. Fancy did what she was asked to do, and the music video that Reba made which, of course, she starred herself in. Uh, she fancied herself as fancy. And I was thinking about this idea. There's people in that situation. There's people that poor. There's people that don't have any other choices in their mind. They have one choice. They've been left by the men. They have no food. And they don't see themselves as having any other choice left but what's wrong with this song is that we solve our own problems our own way and we teach our kids to solve their problems their own way it's like the song where it belts out I did it my way and this is where we find ourselves is a lot of times when we come up against adversity we immediately have only one plan. You know, you think about that. That wasn't a praying mama. That wasn't a believing mama. And it started bothering me to see that there were a lot of y'all that were raised in Christian homes. You were raised with a family who went to church and, and said they were Christians. 
But I would find out that not one time in your life did your family ever say, let's pray together about this problem. Or let's get a promise and let's really stand on it. Let's believe the Lord. None of that. And if that's the way that the mindset of your family went, you have to break that mindset of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's looked upon well in the world, even Christians, of a self-made man or someone that has the Scarlet O'Hara mentality that she swears she will not starve. But what happens is when you do it yourself, you narrow down your options to just one way. You know, this concerns me to think of Christian families who don't think of it in any other terms, where they don't have any other options. You claim to believe one thing, but you're making your music videos of your life preaching another gospel. And this is the gospel of the flesh. This is the gospel of not bringing God into account. And in verse 9, this is exactly where this story starts to go south, literally. It all begins to take off. Abraham is now not just scared about the fact that he won't have food, but suddenly the second fear joins the first fear. Not only do I not have food, I have a beautiful wife. And so his second fear enters, and he becomes afraid of what it says in verse 12, as the men of Egypt. You've got a couple of options here. Abraham basically decided to put the satin dancing dress on his wife. And that's how he was working his way out of the famine. He decides, I guess she'll be a concubine to Pharaoh. Did Abraham's faith in God take a risk on what he had promised? Did he risk and say, God made me these promises, so I'll take a risk? What makes you quit taking risk with God? Here you were willing to pull up all your roots and land right where you're sitting tonight. Think of all the roads you've been on to be exactly in Bible study tonight listening to the Word of God. What makes you at some point say, I'm not going to risk. I'm going to just quit at this point. I mean, honestly, does survival really require him to lie down real low <laughs> and allow his wife to become a concubine? Can we really believe that's what he got in his early morning prayer time? That would be this would be the best move that God has for you to handle your, <laughs> your problem? Abraham's fears seem to make him forget his trust. And we're in verse 12, and now it's not fear number one. We're on fear number two. Now, I'm going to link a verse to this, but let's just bring a little New Testament into this. In 1 Peter 3, 6, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord, and you are her children if you do what is right and refuse to give away to fear. Now, uh, this verse is Stephanie's theory. The men rebuke the women, but they don't ever rebuke the men. <laughs> if you watch, most of the time I'll see men make sure the women obey and don't be frightened by any fear. But I don't see men hold men accountable too often. 
if they do, it's a rare breed. So I was looking at this first thinking, wow, this kind of backs up her theory here. But Sarah did it without fear. Let's go back to the narrative in, in verse 10, Genesis 12, 10. If you read the verse 10 all by itself, you would think the narrator is simply explaining, there's a famine, so I've got to leave. You'd think that's all that that verse is telling you, that when people shrink back in faith, you know, sin's sure to follow. But when you look at what begins happening, you realize it's not just a relocation because they're out of food, they're out of, you know, the economy, that they're having economic threat. You realize that it's an absence of where he had been with the Lord. And as we read the narrative of Abraham's life, it points out that as soon as Abraham left the promised land, this is when his problems began. And you will note, nothing is said here about Abraham seeking the Lord before he did it, going to an altar, uh, asking the Lord if he needs to take a trip down to Egypt. He simply looked at his circumstances and said, we'll die here. Let's head to Egypt. So in this next verse, he begins to reason. And boy, has Abraham been having those vain imaginations. But it's kind of illogical when you think about it. Have you ever noticed your fears are illogical sometimes? Sarah, his wife, didn't all of a sudden just get pretty. <laughs> I mean, he had gotten her into the promised land and past the Canaanites and all the fierce, godless people there. But suddenly Abraham's scared and he quits trusting God. Suddenly the, the God has made all these unbelievable promises to him that has made him move. He, uh, he's not taking this into account anymore. Maybe he doesn't act like God speaks to him. Have you ever heard God once on a crucial part of your life but didn't hear him on the next steps? They lead down south. <laughs> so in verse 11, and it came to pass when he'd come near into Egypt that he said to Sarah, look, I need to kind of let you in on this. But behold now, he goes, you're a very beautiful woman. She's probably smiling, looking at him on the camel, winks at him. But in verse 12, he kind of runs it. He says, therefore, it's going to come to pass when the Egyptians see how beautiful you are, they're going to say, oops, this is his wife? Him? And they're going to kill me. But they'll save you. I bet if she could have reached across that camel right then. So he goes, so I pray thee, would you just say you're my sister? You know, it's, it kind of worked out that way, you know, in our family line. That it may be well for my sake and that I may live because of thee. My dear wife, wow, what a noble patriarch that God has chosen here. So now Abram has been into reasoning, and he invites his wife into reasoning. If I'm going to reason, let's make sure you get into reasoning with me. Can you imagine what happened, the scene when they took Sarah to Pharaoh's house? You know, it was probably right here when she's being dropped off that the joke was made of, have you ever put your dog and your wife in a trunk? 
I'm sure you've heard that. I hear that joke at least once a week. I have a dear friend at church, and he comes and tells it to me again, as if he forgot he told it to me last week. But I really think it's somewhere right in here that the joke came up of uh, Sarah and uh, Abraham's dog are going to have two different feelings about him after this. Can you imagine the look in her eyes and his response when he sees that look? And he says, I'll write. I'll be sure and write you. You know, hers wasn't vain imaginations. What she was seeing, Sarah was seeing reality. He was seeing vain imaginations, but she was seeing reality. Egypt is a time in Abraham's life where he doesn't learn anything good. You know, occasionally you'll have a life event that if you don't man up and overcome it, you will cause a lot of unnecessary pain to other people, to yourself, to your children. You will miss opportunities. If you live in the land of I cannot, or the land of cannot, and not in the land of I I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You will develop an action plan that avoids all challenges. If you don't take up the risk and say, I will live this, you're teaching yourself a bad habit that every time you face something a little bit hard, you'll run. You're training yourself to avoid risk. You think conflict somehow is bad. And I would like to say this is rare. All of us do it occasionally. I'm saying it's epidemic in the churches. People have not at all developed any kind of strength within themselves to face conflict. In fact, if you dare even bring the subject up on Internet of conflict, they start telling you to be nice and be Christian because they don't even see that conflict is birthed out of the very nature of the fact that we live in a kingdom that goes opposite than the world. That we live in a kingdom that it causes conflict just by the way that we live our lives and our devotion to the Lord. You will train yourself wrong if you don't say, I am willing to look at every tough situation in my life as a test or as something that the enemy's trying to do to me. You know, Abram has the choice of staying put and trusting God. How do you deal with a threat? All he has at this point is an economic threat. But he has turned it into a completely different scenario. And this is where I would tell you, you're lying to yourself. And you tell yourself this, and it's one little lie. And if you get this down, this is what I really want you to get. Is this one little lie that is told. Like when you just really don't think you have but just one choice in the matter. Let's take money threats. If you ever make decisions under pressure, you go years not tithing because there are always more bills than income. So you never make the choice between paying the tithes or paying the other bills. You never put God first, and it never gives God anything to work with in your life. It keeps you always with holes in your pocket. It always keeps that going on. So it puts you on this perpetual track of constantly having to work because 
The enemy has legal right. It's the one place in the Bible that says, test the Lord on this. Test him. Will he not provide? And so if you option out of saying, I'm just not going to put you in the area of money. I'm just not going to trust you with money. Then you're going to have a life of year after year after year of never being blessed there. And really being no explanation why. Something will always go wrong. It'll hold you in a trap. Day after day of things not working out. Because you're telling yourself one little lie. You're saying, I can't make the bills this month if I pay my tithe. You think you have one option. You've got narrowed down. When your finances are threatened, tithing is the first thing people stop doing, but it should be last. And the reason why is money is just in your life as a test case. It's going to be the least of the giants that you face in your life. Remember, if Caesar's picture's on it, Caesar can get it. Remember, God says that he tests our faithfulness, our devotion, and what belongs to someone else so that he can trust us with riches that are true riches that come from him. It's a myth to think if it's God's will, it won't be challenged. You're going to be challenged. So hang on to your promises. If you tithe in famine, then believe the Lord. He'll do what he says. And he will open the windows of heaven. I have seen some of y'all literally pay an unbelievable price of tithing when you did not have it. You are like that widow who literally gave God that last piece of bread and call upon him as a father. He says he will not let you starve. He tells us, he promises us. And David says, I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. So you can't be reduced down to one little lie. This is what happened to Abraham here. Abraham didn't consider the boldest move that he could make. You know, in Hebrews eleven eight, as we pull from that, it says Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. You know, right there, a number of you, that would give you a spiritual panic attack <laughs> if God called you to, to go <laughs> somewhere you didn't know. I always admired Corey Tim Boom because one time the Lord told her to fly to a country and she had no one to pick her up. She had no speaking engagement. God said, just go. And I thought, will I ever get to the point that I can do that, that I can go to a country? That just felt like the ultimate risk to me. It started happening where you just take that first step. After I'd done it once, I thought, that was what I used to look up to thinking, I don't know if I could ever have that kind of courage. Going to a place where you did not know where you're going. Some of you, it's being late for a plane that is taking off because God has you witnessing to someone. I remember Malou in the Philippines putting me through tests in this area. You'll either build character or you'll die. Because I was thinking 30 kids all missing their planes, five flights. She wouldn't go get back in the church van and take us. She was still trying to pick me cookies. I wanted to do something with those cookies to her. I didn't know that I was being tested by God. When I realized it, I told Malou, I'll bring Mother next year, do it to her. (laughs) 
So life is a series of this, of being tested. Some of you have just the imagine to really say, God is telling me to move, but I can't tell anybody where. I don't know. So many, many people will move themselves, though, somewhere where they don't know where they're going and what they're doing, and they'll move themselves out of their reasoning, out of their flesh, or out of fear. But they will not let God move them. I know people all day long I could name that just had the impulsiveness to move. And they'll do it. They'll do it for a flesh reason. They got, I know one girl moved clear across the United States because she had a guy she thought liked her. And I have literally watched her destroyed from moving. Destroyed. So, it's funny that we will do it for our flesh, but we won't do it because of God. In John 3, 8, there are very few people, I think, take this verse seriously. For you literally let the Holy Spirit every day lead you where you're going. Now, I'm not talking about being flaky. I'm talking about Christians that are solid, that have good fruit. But this is the way to move by the Holy Spirit. The next area would be God gives you an assignment to do and you don't do it because you don't have enough money in the bank to do it or enough time in the day to do it. I was writing this lesson. It was actually the, the third lesson I was writing for this evening. At this point, I started feeling myself getting mad because the Lord spoke to me and he said, I want you to read this one commentary. I have something I want to speak to you in it. Well, I'm caught between being on time, my coaching in that, and what God's told me. So I've tried the thing of just doing what God's told me and being late, and that hadn't worked well for me with the coach. Then anything else I had to get done, that just made me even more angry. I thought, well, I could just come in here, no face on, no makeup, you know. I'm thinking of all my options. What can I do? And this thing that I have to read is very, very long. So I went to the bathroom and started putting on my makeup. And I was asking the Lord, I said, I think I'm going to do this by my joy. I'm not going to do it by my flesh. So you put me in a pickle. The time is telling me I can't do what you said, but you're telling me there's something this man said I need to know. Give me options. I'm not limited to either or. Now, Lord, I've asked you a few times to let the sun stand still. <laughs> I've had you provide money for an assignment that I had none to do it with that is ridiculous assignments. But um, on this particular one, this one keeps biting me. So he just spoke to me very clearly. He said, send the link to Rachel. Let her read it to you while you drive. And the only hard part I had was trying to remember all that God was speaking to me while she's reading it. And that's what God's having you do. Very simple things. Find a way to win. Don't limit yourself on one. Come up with a fun way. And I was telling Rachel, slow down a little bit. He's speaking to me. He's speaking to me. She goes, you want me to repeat the last paragraph? Yes. After I was through, I was like, I don't even know what he said. I'll know when I, when I speak through this what it was that changed my mind. And this is literally... You're giving God knows when you don't have to. 
You're telling God your problems rather than asking him for his answers. You're telling him, it's time, I can't. It's money, I won't. It's this, it's one. You're giving God one word options like you're the mother to God or you're the, you're the advisor to God. You've got to ask the Lord, how can this be done? He is on purpose making things ridiculous in your life. These are minor things. If you can't run against footmen, how will you ever prevail when you race chariots? How will you ever make it during a serious time if you can't make it during peacetime? We are still in peacetime. So when we face difficult situations, a lot of times we try to convince ourselves that we have no choice. And that's what Abraham did here. It's the reason he didn't pray. He didn't think he had a choice. And what happens is you'll have two or three areas you do well on, but if money's your kicker, if you don't have the money, you'll tell yourself, I have no choice. That's the one little lie. You're lying, you're lying, you're lying to yourself. You're dealing with an omnipotent God that is all-powerful, and you're telling God that there are no other choices. You look ridiculous. If you're doing it at age 15, okay, but not after you've been three years under the Word. By then, you should be willing to ask the Lord, okay, how can I do this? But Abraham convinced himself he had no other choice, and that makes you do something wrong. That makes you do something cowardly. That's letting poverty tell you what to do. That's letting how your parents thought when they weren't submitted to the word of God or established in his ways. That's fear screaming in your ear, and that's pressure. And I tell you, what are we going to do when the end time pressure's on us? If we can't pass a famine in this time, how are we going to pass it then? We're lying to ourselves, and we're telling ourselves, I have no choice. I want you right now to put on the altar every area in your life that you think you don't have a choice in. Everything that you're facing where you're saying, I've got to do it this way because I have no choice. You know, these are our lines and our bears. And when you're emotionally up against something that's roaring, that's killing, that's a predator that you can't imagine, it causes you to talk like this. Let's just say you're David the shepherd boy. And you're taking care of the sheep. And you run home and you say, Daddy, Daddy, Jesse, Daddy, Jesse, a lion came up and it attacked. And boy, was I so relieved because it was distracted by the ram. And I was able to escape as he was mauling our ram. Dad, I'm so glad I got away. Or, Dad, Daddy, 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 a bear came up and it attacked. And I was so relieved it got that little lamb. And it started eating that so it didn't eat me. And that's how, as Gentiles, we think. And that's what we're handing to God as our assignments. And that little lamb and that little ram are people that you're passing by, that you're not helping, that you're the Samaritan, and you're giving him reasons why you don't stop, reasons why you don't speak the word. You know, it's that thing of David saying to himself, I'm just a boy, I'm just young, and all I have is a stick. 
It makes no sense what God's calling you into. And this is not something for the timid of heart. In Revelation, it says the first to go to the eternal darkness are the cowardly. Your feelings are going to tell you you don't have a choice. I had no choice to move. I had no choice but to give Pharaoh what he wanted. Pay attention when you're telling yourself you only have one choice in the matter. However, choices where we stand up to pressure, no matter what your feelings are, because your feelings are going to be emotional, is not the same as having no choice. It's you limiting yourself. The real issue is not money, but it's how you train yourself to deal with the threats. You're acting like that God doesn't have options. And what you've got to do is what Abram did in verse 10. I want you to read that verse again. Look how he said it. It's past Reba. And it says, And he removed from the mountain unto the mountain until he was east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and I on the east, and he built an altar unto the Lord, and he invoked the name of the Lord. Now, if that's not offense, I don't know what translation you're reading it in, but read it in the one that tells you that you invoke the name of the Lord. When your back's against the wall, when you have a lion, when you have a bear, that Abram invoked the name of the Lord. That's how you handle the threats. That's how you handle it. That's how you have that choice. You know, there's two things that stand out about Egypt. Is that what Abraham anticipates? Um, he predicts. He's a prophet. When his fear speaks, it happens. That's a bad thing about having the Spirit of God on you and going negative and start saying what the devil's saying. It gives it the power to come about. If you believe it in your heart and you confess it with your mouth, it'll come to pass. If you have fear in your heart and you do that, that's what happened to the prophet in Genesis 12:16. Sarah went into Pharaoh's hands. And the men of Egypt, instead of taking her for himself, they entreat Abram well for her sake. And they give him a dowry of a lot of different animals, of sheep and oxen and donkeys and men servants and maidservants and, and she donkeys and camels because he was a one-option guy. So this is what stands out about it. But in verse 17, God got involved now, I want you to take into account the men of Egypt. What happens? First of all, I want to say this, because this makes the scholars go several different ways on it. But let's just say something about Sarah. She went up a little higher than he had imagined on the scale of who wanted her beauty. So the problem with this is a king gets what he wants. If it was just a plan for a dowry or of escape, where Abram really thought, well, maybe I could just, if she gets engaged to a guy, I'll get her out of there. Or if he was like, take one for the team. Abram freezes when the gifts come. When the gifts start coming to Abraham, you don't see him coming up with his plan of rescue. 
You don't even see Abraham crying out to God. You don't see anything. He doesn't rescue his wife. Left up to Abraham here, he's passive. You see no movement. He leaves her. He has no strategy. What happens? Makes you wonder if Sarah went vertical with God. When man fails you. And it will always be like that in your life. The Hallmark movie of where that spouse always saves you won't happen. You've got to go vertical with God. That's what Peter's telling you. You've got to pull it down. God got involved. And he cursed them. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, Pharaoh's like, I'm being cursed, and I don't know what I've done. Like, I've had beautiful women all the time, and, and for some reason I'm being cursed, so he calls Abraham in. You can't miss the irony here. It's a pagan correcting a prophet. He starts tearing Abraham up. Now, there was a little accountability here. And sometimes a heathen will correct a Christian better than anyone. He goes, what on earth were you thinking that you would let this happen to me? Abram's so passive, he doesn't speak a word. The biblical scripture remains quiet. He has nothing to say. He doesn't know what to say. It's his worst fear on him. He was afraid the men of Egypt would get her. Oh, it's not the men of Egypt. It's the king. It's the guy with all the power has his wife. The power of Egypt is now screaming at him. He's in a confrontation. So Abram says nothing. Uh, in order not to face the famine, I, I traded my wife. It was trade. <laughs> and Pharaoh called Abraham and says, What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why didn't you communicate this? Why did you say she was my sister? So I might have taken her to me as a wife. Now therefore, behold, take your wife and get out of here. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away, his wife, and all that he had. A time in Abraham's life where the first family of faith learned some bad things. After you've had an Egypt experience, you may have been in the wrong place in your life. You may have made the wrong choice. You may have ran from the risk, and now you have a little baggage. If you think about it, the whole family has gotten a little baggage now from being in Egypt. Nephew Lot, he got a little baggage. The baggage he's brought out is that he's learned from his uncle. It's okay to hang out with the world. Perhaps it was Egypt that Lot has developed his fondness for city life. Because the very next story that this will go into is Lot is now going to pitch his tent in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram had brought his young nephew and exposed him to the temptations that later he will struggle with. It's probably just kind of like what you let your kids watch on TV where they glamorize sin and you go, oh, it's okay. There's a little baggage. It's put in there. Now Sarah has a little baggage. What has she acquired in Egypt? Well, not only did she figure out that her husband would lie and talk her into it, but she learned some things from Abraham. First, she brought back a memory 
that her husband cared more about himself than he did for her. He let another man take her from him. He was supposed to protect her, not the other way around. He looked at the pocketbook. Can the husbands who spend all the family money on themselves and they neglect the wife? No. Why? What was Abraham's biggest mistake? He did not connect with his promises. He didn't connect with, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Abram wasn't a blessing, and he's run out of town. If somebody is completely taking care of self, that's what Sarah now knows. That's how he spends his money. That's how he thinks. Sarah brought back the thought that sometimes God needs a little help with his plan. So the next time she has a problem, she's going to think in terms of, well, let's help God out like you help God out. Let's just borrow my maid. Her faith falters, Ishmael, all the ensuing problems, and generations is the result from Sarah learning how to reason. Well, Abraham brought back a little special memento. He brought back Hagar the Egyptian. <laughs> His was in the flesh. Did you read where Pharaoh gave Abraham gifts of maidservants, men servants? Hagar was his little gift. Think of those things you have now from your Egypt experience that are those little things that Pharaoh gave you. They produce for generations. Abraham has a little baggage. He is made off with the king's ransom. Pharaoh has enriched him with sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, camels, silver, and gold. A further indication that Abraham's wealth was due to royal gifts. He has a little memento, a little exotic thing. That's what he's brought home. Guess what she becomes the mother to? Generations of conflict, threats, and problems. Trace her generation line. You know, God used Pharaoh to get Abraham out of Egypt. It's a shame because now Abraham is bringing the little Egypt home with him. Abraham learned that he would rather live under a famine with God than in Egypt with plenty without God. In the end, do not run from famine and the adversity. Don't run from God. But go back to where you failed. Look at how Genesis says it. You'll like it. In Genesis 13:1, Abraham goes back to his path before he failed the test. In 13:1, notice the verse. And Abraham went up out of Egypt with his wife. I think the Hebrew says he was hightailing it out of Egypt with he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him. And Abraham, who was very rich in cattle and silver and gold, and he went south, he goes to the Negev up. <laughs> it's the south part of where he should have been. And he went on his journeys from the south even to, guess where he went? Bethel unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, unto the place of the altar where he had first made an altar. And there Abraham called on the name of his God. So when we face a threat, we surrender. Notice how the enemy can drive you right back. He returns to his altar. He goes straight back. He is now living again where he should between two choices. 
both Bethel, the house of God, and I, that means a heap of ruins. Did you know that's what I meant? I told you I'd tell you. It means the total collapse. I will be later in history again. It takes Jericho twice to be able to defeat them. The Jews were feeling very cocky, and without prayer and guidance, they sent a small squadron to attack and defeat it, and they were instead defeated by a smaller army. Ai gave them problems. It's important to go back to the location, the place where you have the generational blessing. So Abraham, again, pitches his tent in the place of seeking God and blessing, and not the place of not seeking God in a house of ruins. It reminds us of if we build our house upon the Lord, it is the house of God. But if we don't, it's a trash heap. It's the collapse of the house. Bethel is the place where later his grandson Jacob would offer himself to the Lord. And there is a vision of the ladder of angels ascending and descending to heaven on this very spot where Abram is. And God repeating the promise he made to Abraham to Jacob when he goes to Bethel. It's that place where you meet with God and seek him. Abraham went to Egypt. But notice, there's one last thing that God's going to say. I want you to look at Genesis 26 too. And if this is not humor, it's the fact that you contend for your mantle. You get a mantle and you believe everything about your mantle is good, but you may have to if you're Isaac, go further than your father went. If you're uh, John the Baptist, you've got to come out of that doubt and depression like Elijah, who you carry the mantle. And if you're Isaac, in verse 2, it says, The Lord appeared to Isaac because there was a famine in the land. And he says, Do not go down to Egypt, Isaac. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in the land for a while, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to your ascendants, I will give you all these lands and will confirm the oath that I made to your father, Abraham. And that's the context that says Isaac was in a place where God himself appeared to him and told him, don't go there. And guess what happened to Isaac? In the time of famine, it says Isaac prospered a hundredfold in the land. God was saying, options, I can give you a hundredfold. When everyone else is collapsing, the roughest of time, just nail your feet down. Don't run. Stick to the promises. I'm swearing the oath. I will bless you a hundred times over. Amen.